In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how human history begins. God does not explain His existence. He does not defend it. He simply announces it. He states it as the fundamental fact of life in the universe. That's troubled people who don't believe in God because they, when they push God out of the question, they are left with an irreconcilable difficulty. They don't know where everything else came from. And they too must exercise, as I do, they must exercise faith, and they must believe simply in a universe that is a singularity. If you've done that reading, somehow things became impossibly dense and hot and exploded and created everything else that is. A brilliant physicist recently announced his belief that life was seeded from other planets by aliens who brought it here. That may be. Where did the aliens come from, and where did the life that they seeded in our part of the galaxy and their little part of the universe come from? You can have your choice, eternal God or eternal matter. The Bible says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, and if you don't, help yourself to one of ours, thus begins God's retelling, God's telling of His own history. It begins with that, and He makes a world that is glorious. He makes a world that is magnificent. We love that glory, and we love that magnificence. That's one reason anybody lives in Orange County. You know that there are infinitely cheaper places to live. Almost anywhere else in America, you could spend less, right? Why do we do it? Because we love to send pictures of the beach to our family in Iowa in February. (laughs) with passive-aggressive things that over the years erode relationships like, wish you were here. A friend of mine taunted me from Boston. He said, the weather here is beautiful, just like the Patriots 7-0, because he knows I'm a Cowboy fan and I'm having a miserable year on that front. And I said, let's talk in February after they win the Super Bowl. They, might, they probably won't be 7-0, and if they are, he'll be frozen and I'll feel better. Okay? That's one reason we love being here, but the glory of God's creation is all around us. I mean, where else but here could you enjoy the mountains, the desert, and the ocean in the same day just for the price of a little driving? But that's not actually the most glorious part of God's creation. The most glorious part of God's creation is you. As much as we love beautiful surroundings, we love the, beaut- we love the beauty of relationships, and every human person who's ever been born wants to be loved and accepted. Every little boy wants to be the hero of the story. Everyone yearns for friendship and family and to be deeply understood and meaningful and significant and loved and even to work. Believe it or not, people love to work. For those of us who have teenagers, we may find that hard to believe, but I assure you, People love to work. If they find their, their work meaningful, purposeful, if they feel that it makes a difference, we're made to work. And all of that is in the first two chapters of Genesis because God made everything, and every time He created, He stepped back, and the master creator said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Then He made people. 
And when he made the first human being, God did not simply speak him into existence, he fashioned him. And then in language that is shocking in its intimacy, God breathes life into the man that he had made. And only at that point does Genesis say he became a living being, face to face, breath to breath. Then from Adam he makes Eve, and he brings Eve to man, and the first marriage is born, and it's glorious. If you look at carefully at Adam's words and what he said of Eve when he saw her, if you look carefully in the Hebrew, it means something like this. Wow. That's a joke. That's not what it says in Hebrew. <laughs> but I'm reasonably confident that was the emotion. And life was good for two chapters. The Bible has 1,189 chapters, and barely in the third chapter, things go terribly wrong. You see, there's a backstory there, and there is a hostile person alive in the universe as well. Satan has tried to deify himself and to take God's place, as I so often do, trying to get of him, ahead of him. And he is already in creation, and he entices the first man and the first woman. Eve is deceived. Adam sins willfully. And in barely the third chapter of a long 1,189-chapter book, life is ruined. For the first time in his life, and that's the only existence you and I have ever known, man is apart from God. We've never known truly, purely perfect, blissful relationship with God or anyone else. We've known beauty. If we know Jesus, we have a real relationship with God, but it's never been perfect, and it won't be until the end of the book. But Adam and Eve had it and lost it by their own sinful will, by the deception of an invitation that God was holding out on them, and they could do better. That's the nature of every temptation. Every time I've ever sinned, it's because somewhere deep in my heart, even though I wouldn't articulate it, is I think I can do better than what God has plainly told me to do. I know better. And that created the disaster that unfolds in the pages of Scripture and that we live in today. When our phones and computers and television screens light up with news like a massacre in a city like Paris. People ask themselves, what's going on with the world? It's all in Genesis 3. The first human family had two children, and one of the boys killed the other. The first murder is in the first pages of Scripture. And you can read that as mythological creatures, but they're not. It's actual human history. And imagine the death of a son dealt by the hand of his own brother, and imagine the heartbreak and the loss as Adam and Eve looked at that corpse and thought to themselves, we unleash this horror into the world. You see, when we read in the beginning pages of our Bible what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, we see creation and life as it was meant to be, but it doesn't last for long. Mankind became so wicked that God judged mankind in a flood, and we understand from Genesis that God is not only a creator, He is also a judge, and He is holy. But we see amazingly that God continues to go back to these people who have defied Him and denied Him and ignored Him, and that's going to tell us very good news about God that's going to become ever clearer as we 
walk through the pages of Scripture. And in Genesis 12, that early in the story, God stops dealing with all of humanity and reaches down and speaks to one single individual. When you look at the Bible in its whole scope, it's pretty amazing. He deals with the entire planet, with all the nations, with all mankind for only 11 chapters. In Genesis chapter 12, he stops and he speaks to one man. His name was Abram. He was born in modern-day Iraq. His parents and grandparents and ancestors before that would have been moon worshipers. And for absolutely no reason, aside from the fact that God is good and He pursues His wrecked, ruined creation in faithful love, God spoke to Abram and made him an astonishing promise. In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to read a little bit today in the Bible. Would you read this with me? The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you catch that last phrase? In you, every family on earth, every tribe, every clan, every people group, everyone is going to be blessed through you. I'm going to give you a family, Abram, and from that family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has stopped. And purely by His grace, He's dealing with one individual and making him a lavish promise that somehow God will bless him in such a way that someday he will be a channel of blessing to the entire world. And God doesn't have a whole lot to work with. Candidly, because of sin, God never does. That's how He gets the credit. And we dare not miss a spiritual principle here. God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will bless the nations. I will defend you, and I will bless you, and I will protect you so that you yourself will be a blessing. If there's one thing that has bedeviled the American church in our unparalleled prosperity is that we've misunderstood what God is saying here. God always blesses us so that we will be a blessing to others. You are not the point of the blessings. I am not the point of God's blessings. We are mere channels so that other people will be blessed. And God begins with Abram, but we discover that he is a faithful man and a man that is willing to trust God with his own son, but he is also deeply flawed. He is a sinful man who will expose his wife to somebody else's advances out of fear. Even the son of the promise that God gave him named Isaac Himself is flawed, and Jacob, Jacob is a mess. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He makes a great, great, great big mess out of life. And he has 12 sons, and that family dynamic was so messed up that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children and made a big public display of, this is my favorite kid, and the rest of you just go to work. Give it, gave him his famous coat of many colors and the sin that made all of God's creation ruined so that all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen, flowered in that family in this way. 
One day the brothers saw Joseph coming to them, and they said, let's kill him. And one brother had the grace to speak in his defense, so instead they threw him in a pit and callously ate lunch while their brother, brother pleaded for his life inside an empty pit. They decided not to kill him because God was at work. God had made a promise, and even in this sin-wrecked, messed up, dysfunctional, they would be on Dr. Phil today if, if Dr. Phil were around kind of family. God has a plan and God has a purpose, and instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery. And a terrified teenager has to learn as a man with no right of his own, not even the right to his own life, he must learn another language. And because God is faithful, he makes Joseph wait for a very long time, but he, he raises him up to prominence so that he's the second in all the land of Egypt. And that's how Joseph rescued his family in Egypt. But then a Pharaoh came up who didn't know Joseph, and he enslaved the people that the Pharaoh once loved. And they were enslaved for a very long time. Anybody remember how long the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt? 400 years. We normally say 400 to Acts, it says 430. Over 400 years. Let me put that in historical context for you. That's about twice as long as there has been a United States of America. How's God's plan going so far, do you think? People wrecked it and ruined it and walked away from him. He spoke to a single man saying, from you I will bless all the nations of the earth. How do you think it's going? Doesn't look too good. They were rescued only to be thrown into slavery. But then God raises another deliverer named Moses. And Moses uses the very power of God to do the things that only God can do and leads the people through the Red Sea so that they wouldn't have to face Pharaoh's murderous army and they walk through it as on dry land. And surely now they'll get it, right? And from that point forward in Scripture, what you see is unbroken faithfulness and love for God. Right? No, actually. They became so forgetful of God's power and so fearful that God said, everyone in this generation is going to die in the desert, which led, as a friend of mine joked yesterday at a conference we were doing here, must have led to some awkward conversations where the kid says to his dad, how you feeling today, dad? Oh, I feel great. Ah, too bad. Because we're not going to get into the promised land until all of you old guys are gone. And that went on for decades. But there was one man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, who did what God said and stuck close to Moses and remembered all that God has promised. His name was Joshua. And as Moses before him, he led them through water as well, straight into the promised land. And God kept his word and drove their enemies before him. So surely from that day forward, they would live faithfully with him and love him and do all that he said, right? No, because that led to the days of the judges. And I can't tell you how many young people who are reading the book of Judges for the first time kind of slap it shut and say, I can't believe this stuff's in the Bible. This would be R-rated, probably NC-17, depending on how we film it, it could get all the way to forbidden. And you're right. There's murder and rape and genocide and family cruelty on a scale that is 
absolutely astonishing that God recorded this. Why is that? Because the book of Judges, its signature thought is this, in those days every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what what they pleased. Does that remind you of any life experiences that you've had? We're careening that way. And from the book of the Judges, even in that, God gives us a little hint in a tiny little almost seemingly insignificant story of a girl from the wicked land of Moab who returned to Israel with her embittered Jewish mother-in-law who had the simple faith of a child to believe that God could love her and accept her too and welcome her into her people because God hasn't forgotten His promise. And after the days of the judges, He gives them Samuel, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, a man whose ministry was so astonishing that the Bible itself says not one thing that Samuel declared failed or fell to the ground. It all came true. And surely with a prophet like that speaking God's Word to them, they would do all that was well, right? No. They came to Samuel one day and in a particularly offensive passage said, Samuel, you're old and your kids are no good. We want a king. We want a king like all the nations that are around us. You know, the kings that enslave people and sacrifice, make religious practices that sacrifice children to their gods. We want a king like like they have. And it infuriated Samuel, and it broke his heart, and he went to talk to God about it, and God said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And he gave them a king after their own heart. He gave them Saul. And if Saul were running for president in the United States, his poll numbers would probably be pretty good today because Saul looked presidential. He was, the Bible tells us, head and shoulders above the rest. He stood out in a crowd. He looked the part. It's almost impossible to be elected to any important public office in the United States if you don't look the part. That began in the United States when television became popular because it really matters how you look, and you can be brilliant and have the integrity of the greatest man on earth, but if you're not too good looking, we probably don't want to vote for you. We're funny that way. And that's not an American invention. That's always been in the human heart. That's why they love Saul, and they got a king after their own heart, a king who who would cowardly refuse to go fight their battles when someone like Goliath stood in the field. And he died in disgrace. He died essentially a suicide, a tragic death on the battlefield. And then God gave them David, a shepherd boy who God himself said, this is a man after my own heart. I'm taking the throne away from you, Saul, to give it to someone better than you who will do what I say, who loves my heart and I love his. And surely now with a king like this, the people will do what God wants, right? No. There were good days in the days of David, For brief moments, they understood it. For brief moments, as their king walked with God, they too walked with God and celebrated extraordinary times of worship and actually wrote down some of their songs to remind us that they understood it for a brief time. See, one of the reasons I love singing as a church both old hymns and new songs is our songs present us at our best. 
They tell us what we hope to be. They remind us in song with emotion that music can convey what we actually believe, and it's wonderful. Let me read with you one of the Psalms of Israel that came from the time of David. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Does that remind you of any Scripture we've read this morning? They're singing for God to do what He promised to their first father. Do you see that connection? God said to Abraham, I will bless you. Now they're singing, God, may it be true. Read it with me. Let's read the whole thing. It's short. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Do you hear how they get it? God bless us for this reason, so that the peoples will praise you. That's not a misprint. It means tribes. It means ethnic groups. This is the end of racism. This is the end of discrimination. As it turns out, God loves the whole world and has it in view, and you don't have to wait till John 3.16 to understand that. In the few brief moments that God's people walked with Him, they understood His heart, and they said, God, please bless us so that people will turn their eyes to you and praise you too. God, the rulers of the nations are wicked. Let them praise you because you alone judge the nations with equity. Their laws are horrible and unjust and deadly for them. You rule, you reign, you bless us to draw up other people to yourself. They get it and they have a king after God's own heart and surely now what God promised is going to happen, right? No. Because a man after God's own heart became complacent and self-indulgent. And on a time, it tells us, when the kings went to war, David stayed back. And he went for a walk, and it's hard to know what to make of it, whether it was casual or merely or purposeful, but he looks down from his high perch at the top of his nation and sees a beautiful woman bathing. And with the knowledge that she belongs to one of his special soldiers, one of his best fighters, the king says, bring her, bring her to me. What follows in our day would be called probably rape under color of authority. And he sleeps with her. And she sends a message back, King, I'm pregnant. And David's got a terrible mess on his hands because the husband is home, is not home. He's out in the field fighting David's battles. So David pulls out all the stops to the point of getting this good man home and getting him drunk so that he'll go home and enjoy a night with his wife. But the soldier has more integrity than his king, and he refuses to go in. He sleeps outside saying, my men are in the field. I cannot do it. It lacks integrity. I'll stay outside. And a man after God's own heart discovers that there's terrible wickedness in it too. Because he sends a death warrant home in that man's own hand with the knowledge that his soldiers certainly will not look at royal orders. 
And he sends the soldier back to the front to his general named Joab and says, put him in the hottest part of the fighting, and when it gets really bad, the rest of you draw back. Leave him exposed. And it was successful. I'm sure that mighty man who had come home successfully for many, many hand-to-hand fights looked around and surprised as his formerly trusted comrades in arms stepped back and left him alone to face it. And he did his best, but he was unsuccessful because they murdered him on that field. And it was so bad that Joab was afraid that David would be mad, but David said, hey, that's war. Sword kills one, sword kills another. And he grew so callous and so hard that God had to send a prophet into David's life to tell him a story so that David could recognize himself and repent. Even the best of God's people to whom have been made the best promises, who God himself has said are the right kind of people, turn out to be as the rest of God's creation Glorious on their best days, but fallen and wicked and treacherous on all the others. But then God renews His grace to the house of David, and from that union, that woman became his wife, and she had a son named Solomon. And he asked God for the right thing, for wisdom, and God so blessed him that the Bible itself says that no one has ever been as wise as Solomon. And Solomon wrote things that you read in your Bible today as Proverbs. And surely now Israel will go straight into the center of God's purpose, right? No, not at all. David had a single, treacherous, ugly sexual sin Solomon multiplied it literally a thousand times. And he became so in love with other women and pagan women that they drew their Solomon's heart away from God and after their own idols. So you have this treacherous, ugly, embarrassing, humiliating spectacle of the wisest man who ever walked the earth till that day offering sacrifices to idols he once knew were made merely of stone and wood. That led to dark days in Israel. Solomon was a wise man who became foolish. His son after him was so foolish that he split the kingdom. In God's 12 tribes, the one he had brought out of Abraham as promised had a terrible civil war, and Israel, the nation of Israel became two separate nations, Israel versus Judah. Into that mess, God sent the prophets continually calling both peoples back, speaking of them of both judgment and mercy. And in the best days, you read things like this, 700 years before Jesus was born, you can tell that God has not forgotten His promise because He writes things like this in Isaiah 49, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah says that's coming someday, but all we have now is war and idolatry. So much so that Israel, the northern tribes, ten tribes, never enjoyed a single good king. And when God had finally had enough, he sent one of the cruelest nations to ever walk the earth that we call the Assyrians. And they swept into Israel and left nothing. 
their destruction was so complete and their scattering so thorough that we still call what the Assyrians did to those tribes, we call them today the lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom of two little tribes, they continued for a little bit longer, but not for very long. A different empire took care of them. The empire of Babylon one day came in and did something that would have been unthinkable when Solomon dedicated the temple and asked God to send the nations into it so that they would know the one true God, one day Babylonian soldiers took torches and sledges and prying bars into the temple of God and destroyed it completely. And they burned it to the ground. And it appears that every single thing that God has promised is lost. There are faithful men like Daniel but he's in exile in the kingdom of Persia. He's saying promising things of the future, but he's very far from his homeland. But then God uses the Persian empire to send people home to rebuild the temple. And a simple frightened Jewish girl in Persia named Esther is used to save her people from genocide, even though the name of God is not mentioned in the entire book. And a book that never mentions God has this simple message. Rulers come and go, but God is in control. And we in America would do well to remember that. As we try to make our cause go viral on Facebook and demand the change that we need to see, let's do all that God pleases, but never lose sight of the fact that He's in charge. And He uses pagan men, Persian men, who don't know the God of Israel to make astonishing decisions like sending people back to rebuild that burned temple and Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And it's not much, but it's a place again for God's people to gather and worship. It was so modest that the people who remembered the first temple and who knew of it wept when they saw this meager construction. But the people are back in the land, and then guess what? Between your Old Testament and the New For 400 years, guess what happens? Nothing. God goes dark. He stops speaking. Now, see, you can see that in a historical overview, and God hasn't done anything. God doesn't speak for 400 years. That's interesting. That blank page between the Old Testament and my New Testament, God's, that blank page represents God's silence. Did you hear me? For 400 years, a God who had spoken and acted and done all of these things said nothing. What's he up to? He's setting up one empire after another, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And by the time all of that was done, the world spoke a single language. The Romans built good roads, and the Jews had placed synagogues everywhere across that empire. So that when God made His final move to usher in the end and sent His Son, Jesus, the world was prepared for it. As God had promised 1,700 and 500 years earlier, finally God sent Jesus to keep all of God's promises so that Matthew writes, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And now that the Son of God is on earth doing all that God does, surely now all will be well, right? Because Jesus speaks the very words of God. Jesus speaks and the blind can see again. In fact, Jesus speaks and the dead come back to life. 
His own opponents recognize that when Jesus opens the Hebrew Scriptures, he speaks as one who has authority, not like their religious teachers. And the Scriptures and the promises and the warnings of God all make sense and change people's lives and reunite dead children to their bereaved parents. And the very presence of God is on earth bringing people back to himself. So surely now all's going to be okay, right? No. You know what they did? Jews and Gentiles, for all kinds of twisted personal reasons, everyone pulling in their own direction just as it had been in the garden, conspired against the Son of God and killed Him on a Roman cross. And Jews and Gentiles, the whole world stood in judgment of Jesus and killed Him and put Him to death. But then, the most astonishing, life-changing, life-making moment in history, a moment so unbelievable that the first people who saw it couldn't believe it themselves, and when they told the others who should have been expecting it were thought crazy for telling them so, Jesus came back from the dead, just as He had promised. And simple, ordinary people had their lives completely changed. And one day, Jesus spoke to some of those unbelieving disciples and said this in Luke, Speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's all been written. This all went, believe it or not, according to plan. Turns out that God's been calling the shots the whole time. And the betrayal of David and the sinfulness of Abraham and the imperfections of Jacob, and the fear, and the contradictions of Moses, none of those things have been able to stand in God's way. And Jesus opens their minds so they understand it, and it says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name, where? To all nations, just like God once promised Abram. And you know the rest of the story. Once those disciples became convinced that Jesus was actually back from the dead and He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit He had promised them, people who had formerly locked themselves in for fear of the authorities that killed Jesus became the boldest witnesses that the world has ever seen. And they were stoned and cut into pieces and burned to death. They were thrown out of their businesses and homes. They lost everything, first physically and then their very lives, so that it became legendary. And we still remember today sad scenes like the Colosseum tearing Christians apart who would rather say that Jesus is alive rather than take it back and live. And a former Pharisee of all places, of all people, a kosher-keeping, keeping circumcision-preaching man who loved the law and thought his righteousness was good enough, once named Saul, now named Paul, goes into wicked pagan cities like Ephesus and Corinthians to preach the good news of Jesus. And you know what they did to him for his trouble? They beat him and put him in prison and tried to kill him more than once. But the good news of Jesus and his local church spread all over the world, just as Jesus said. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Everything that God promised in the Old Testament when Jesus arrives, that's, Je that's God saying, yes, right here. He's the fulfillment. He's the one. 
And Paul says, that is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now, that's a complicated sentence, right? Let's think through it. Do you know what amen means? We agree. So be it. Can I put it in slightly old-fashioned language? Right on. (laughs) Read it that way. It'll make sense. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our right on, our so be it, our that's right to God for whose glory? For God's glory because he's the one that's been doing all this. And so begins the Christian church. The good news and the church spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul is a herald and a forerunner to missionaries like we have in our church today who will go to the uttermost parts of the earth who are never content to stay back where the gospel has already been preached but is always reaching forward. That's what the Reddies who were here last week are doing in India. They're taking the name and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to people who have literally never heard the story explained. And then we come to the very end of the book, and I want you to read how it all ends up. In Revelation, we find new heavens and new earth. And read with me in in the last two chapters of the Bible. This is the end of the story. Would you read with me? John looks forward into future history and writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Here's a promise for you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And Jesus has the last word literally in Revelation 22. Read with me. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come. And the one who hears it say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Here's what I have to tell you. Here's what it means. The only thing that can send this sin-wrecked world, the only thing that can save us is the resurrection of Jesus. Abram couldn't do it. He was sinful, and he got a hold of God's plan and set loose in the world bad decisions that still have repercussions today. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. 
King David, a man after God's own heart, he certainly couldn't do it. The wisest man in the history of the world to that point, Solomon certainly couldn't do it. At every point, every man that stepped forward in the moment he stepped forward, stepped forward with his own weakness and his own sin and his own failure. Only Jesus in his death and resurrection can wrap the story up and take the story back to where it started into a new heaven and a new earth where all of those relationships that you find painful and difficult and every disappointment and everything that has ever made you cry will be wiped away because God will be with you in perfect fellowship as He once was with the, sin, with the perfect human family before sin entered the world. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The story will end even better than it started. Your story will end better than it started. Your story, like every person we've discussed today, has been wrecked and sinned. You've stained yourself and embarrassed yourself and shamed yourself, and you've tried without success to save yourself. If you understand nothing else, please understand this. Jesus is the only one who can save you. There's 1,189 chapters in the book to tell you that single fact. Sin rules in the human heart, and it wrecks the world around us. But God in love sent His Son to redeem us and endured every kind of rejection, pain, even to the point of death, to bring you back and to, so that you could be reconciled to Him, so that the story, your story, could end better than it started. So what should you do? You should run to Jesus. You should turn away from your sin and as best you can say, God, I am terribly sorry. I understand. I've tried to save myself, but I now understand I can't. Please save me. I'm not going to look to religion and human self-effort and self-improvement to make myself better. I'm telling you I'm sorry for my sin and save me. And he will because the story in God's plans always ends even better than it started. Let's pray.